is Transitional Matters with Chris Marshall. With Chris Marshall. We've gathered the best thinkers from around the world to talk about the most important social, environmental, financial, technological, and geopolitical transitions that affect your life. Transitional Matters is all about bringing the greatest thinkers directly to your ears. The most important trends, megatrends, and transitions that are going on around us. Now zip up and put your headphones on. Broadcasting direct from the UK, here's your host, Chris Marshall. Well, welcome to episode six of Transitional Matters. Uh, today I'm joined by uh, Marco Papik from Clock Tower Group. And really we've invited Marco uh, because uh, we want to talk about geopolitics. That's kind of going to be the, the mainstay of our conversation. Although I think we'll probably deviate into everything macro at some point, as is uh, often the case with any conversation I, I seem to get myself into. So Marco, could you start just by giving a very brief outline how you arrived at your current role, how you became chief strategist at, at Clock Tower Group, and also kind of, I guess, where I kind of discovered your work was through your book, Geopolitical Alpha. There's a lot of questions in there, but... <laughs> well, thank you so much, Chris, for having me on the show. So my story really begins with academia. I was studying to do a PhD in political science, and I realized midway through it that I was going to be a terrible academic, because the whole point of academia is to really sit on an issue and really think about it for a very, very long time, collect the data, create the data if you don't have it. And so it was very slow moving for me. I was much more interested in what was going on there and then at that moment and how I could uh, sort of bring my analytical understanding to it. So you could say that I'm a failed academic, you know, didn't like it. That's not um, always a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, not always, uh, but, I, but I do have a great appreciation for political science, academia, and the literature, and the knowledge that has been, you know, created by many, many, you know, people who were really good at that. Uh, and then I quit my PhD program and went to a political risk consultancy group, it was Stratfor. It was actually in the same city, Austin, where I was doing my PhD in political science at the University of Texas. That was much more my speed. But what I realized very early on was that it was very difficult to really assess whether you were right or wrong. And I hate that because I really want to be right. You know, I, I want to be right. And what I hated more than anything in the world was these annual meetings where the senior strategists or analysts would say like, oh, I was right. You know, and it was like, well, were you though? Like the forecast was kind of nonsense anyways to begin with. Like Turkey will experience volatility. That can mean anything from a coup to like, you know, currency falls 5%. So I wanted a more objective way to measure success of forecasts. And uh, I mean, think about what's going on right now in Russia and Ukraine, for example. You can say like, oh, Russia's going to invade Ukraine. Yeah, but like crossing the border into Donbass for like two weeks is not the same as like a full-on invasion. And if you proclaim victory on both of those forecasts, you're an idiot. What was it's, the point of the forecast? Almost. Yes. Yeah. What was the point of the forecast? And yeah. so what I, what I really liked was the euro area crisis, which hit, obviously, it started off in 2009, actually, with Central and Eastern European uh, banking crises caused by various, you know, currency linked mortgages in places like Romania and Poland and Czech Republic and so on. And uh, that really got me thinking like, wait a minute, this is ultimately the euro area crisis is ultimately uh, a geopolitical event, but there is a way to actually forecast and then also keep your forecast to some objective measure of success. And that's the market. 
and I got hooked. I mean, that's when I got addicted to basically trying to use politics and geopolitics as a tool to forecast the markets. Um, eventually, I moved on to the financial industry. I went to BCA Research, which is a very old and very respectable independent research firm based in Montreal, Canada. And I spent eight years there developing this research product. And then I, I left in 2019 and joined the buy side to kind of put my forecast to the test. And so that's where I am right now in Santa Monica at Clock Tower Group, which is an alternative investment management firm. Um, and then I wrote a book in 2020. And I'll, I'll be perfectly honest, Chris, because in January of 2020, I thought there was nothing that was going to happen. I said to myself, well, we got 11 months to the election, U.S. election. I got six months to write a book. You know, <laughs> little did I know that. A little bit of downtime. Yeah. Yeah, just a little bit of downtime. It's going to be fine. This year is going to have no macro-moving events. But then I, I put together the book, Geopolitical Alpha, and, and that explains the methodology that I developed over the 10 years before 2020. Did you really write that in six months? I wrote it in uh, more like three months. Wow, three months. okay. I, I now yeah. feel like a, you described yourself as an academic failure. I now feel my, I'm, I'm a writing failure. I'm in the middle of, I think we discussed this, I'm in the middle of writing a book called Transitional Matters, hence the name of the podcast looking at these trends and transitions around this. And I think it's, I'm about two years in now. <laughs> yeah. Well, but that's because you're starting from scratch. You know, like in my case, I had a decade worth of investment research that I could draw on. So to be honest, you know, the book, the first three chapters and the last three chapters are new, but the in between the case studies uh, come from the research that I had written in the past, where, where I modified it a little bit, made it funnier, to be honest with you. My research can be pretty dry, but the book is hilarious, I think, at least. You've made me feel better anyway. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna take that answer. So I, I really want to start by looking back at some of the changes which have happened through history to bring us to today. Because my way of thinking is you can't really understand the present unless you understand the things that led us to where we are. And I think this is one of the things that you draw on quite early in your book, that the last 25 years, I think you put it as a time frame, kind of geopolitics and domestic policy has been quite a strong tailwind, but that's now turning, in your opinion, or is well underway turning, I guess I should say. Could you kind of outline some of your thinking behind that? Yes. So I would say that 40 years, last 40 years has been a tailwind. You know, everything since the Reagan-Thatcher revolution has basically been all about minimizing the role of government in all spheres of life, including finance, markets. I think that I mean, first and foremost, that's, that didn't happen because somehow laissez-faire economics is the ultimate destination of humanity. You know, it, it wasn't destined to happen. It happened for ideological, for political reasons. And it happened because the 1970s, and this is probably instructive for your listeners today, the 1970s were disastrous in the Western world. Uh, you had not just the failures of geopolitical endeavors like the Vietnam War, you also had the things like the inflation, which was a product of demand-side, demand-driven, overly demand-driven policies of the late 60s. And so that set the stage up for this, you know, embracing of the Chicago School, the laissez-faire, uh, small government policies. And we had been operating on that, on that software. We downloaded that software from the 80s, and we were operating on it for 40 years. And so a lot of investors who over those 40 years forgot how to you know, deal with geopolitics or politics, they came to believe that the world that they were in was devoid of geopolitics and politics because that is the superior outcome and therefore it will always be like that. It was like, you know, they were like a fish swimming in water, unaware that they're in water. 
Well, guess what? They're not out of water. And if you're an investor who doesn't have politics and geopolitics in their toolbox, you will absolutely lose all your money. Now, know they said in your toolbox. Yeah. I'm not, my book is not a claim that like, oh, you'll make so much money, read this book. Like, no, no, no. My claim is very, very small. My claim is you've got a toolbox when you go to work, a blue collar worker with a lunch pail or with a toolbox. And in that toolbox, there's a bunch of wrenches and screwdrivers and hammers and levelers and blah, blah, blah. You need to add the geopolitics and politics into that toolbox because if you don't, well, then you're a fish out of water. And so the premise of the book is that those 40 years of laissez-faire economics and that ideological superstructure that had been underpinned by the failures of the 70s are now giving way to something else. I think that's a, a really good answer. And I'm going to bring it back to something you just said that kind of, you know, since the 70s, that, that regime that kind of has been in place around certainly the Western world. Would you say we're going back to the 70s, that, that this current era now is more like the 70s? Or would you actually say that this is more like a bigger turning point? Because for me, my thesis is very much that we're at the edge of not just change and transition, but radical social change, changing the social contract completely, like kind of industrial revolution, 18th century, early 19th century. Where would you place us? Do you think it's that significant? Or do you think this is just a a kind of a Cold War or 1970s kind of place we're in now? Well, I think we need to separate, I think, the social and the macro. Okay. Because one will facilitate the other, I think. Yeah, absolutely. If we were, if, So if we were stuck in the laissez-faire world of like, hey, you know, no government, no what uh, Mariana Matsukato refers to as a mission-driven economy, like we're not going to have that, then it's going to be difficult to have the transition you're talking about. Yeah. So the first thing that's going to happen is that laissez-faire is going to be like completely washed away, and it has been. And I think Trump really did it. It wasn't Biden. You know, like here in the U.S., it's all like, oh, it's the socialist Biden. It's like, yeah, not really. Like, hey, newsflash. Like, Trump blew out the budget deficit, like, <laughs> at the low point of unemployment rate for the first time since 1968. So, like, the less was killed long before Biden. And so what I would say is that that's the first step you need. And then the, the bigger transition then becomes something more social. But what I would say is the first issue is to really identify what does it mean to transition away from laissez-faire. Let, let's just define that first. I mean, there's a there's a number of different things that fall into what was referred to as the Washington Consensus. Washington Consensus is like the product of laissez-faire brand. Yeah. Right? And so Washington Consensus is just a set of best practices. It's like free trade, uh, deregulation, very, very low touch regulation, no antitrust monopoly stuff at all, like very minimal, you know, um, only when companies get too big for their bridges. Things like privatizations, Economy, fiscal policy is always counter-cyclical, never pro-cyclical, and a prudent uh, monetary policy that focuses on price level changes. That was packaged as a Washington consensus and sold around the world. You know, so when the IMF guys showed up in your, you know, third world country, they would be like, hey, boom, here's the best practices. Please implement this and you're good. And you get our, uh, our housekeeping seal of approval. And so those are the things that change first. And then I do actually think you're right, that there will be a new kind of industrial revolution thing. But that's happening also because not just the macro, but you need more. And the two other things that are happening are massive income inequality issues that I've been writing about for 10 years. Uh, and the other one is uh, technological change that allows us to actually enter some post-industrial revolution era. So in that kind of, I'm just going to come back to something you've just said, that the, the massive income inequality or wealth inequality, we could widen that out from simply income, couldn't we? In your view, where does that stem from? I'm going to firmly pin this badge 
on monetary policy. And just when you start inflating assets, as they have done through, you know, kind of, we could say, I, I think it's maybe Ray Dalio or somebody from Bridgewater that kind of came out saying, oh, we're in monetary policy regime three. We tried just lowering interest rates. The next move in the great financial crisis was to throw some money in the system, but that just sat in banks' excess reserves. And now we're kind of integrating fiscal and monetary policy together. And all of those are very asset inflationary, aren't they? Yeah, I kind of disagree. I'm going to take the other side of that. Oh, please you know? do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at the Gini coefficient changes over the last 40 years, like it really started with the 1980s. And so, like empirically, it's, I think it's very difficult to say that it started with monetary policy. Now, you might say, well, actually, you know, monetary policy became overly easy in the 90s. And so we repeatedly inflated the debt super cycle through interest rate policy. You know, and, and I mean, you could go back to September 11th. After that, the Fed kept interest rates too low, causing the housing bubble. And that's if that's your claim that it's always been monetary policy, I'll be okay with that. But I would say that it goes further than just 2008. So yeah. I, I, I find in the financial markets, a lot of investors are very enthused by this idea that it's post-2008 QE that caused income inequality, but the data just simply does not support that. The Gini coefficient, the growth of the value going to the top 10%, to the 1%, however you want to define income inequality or wealth inequality, I can show you charts that shows that it's the 80s. It's the reagan Thatcher revolution that really created the widening income inequality. And then it was supercharged, absolutely, by the post-2000, absolutely, 2008, QE. And now, of course, what's happening now is harrowing. And I'd love to talk about it in some specifics, but let's leave that for a side. Like what's happening now is, I mean, the final, ultimate, penultimate, like kind of tip of this long run in increment quality. The other thing that I would say, Chris, is that we need to always have a global perspective, always. And yeah. this is really tough in a place like the United States of America, which is a world in and of itself. It's a huge place. And a lot of people like to self-reference the, like U.S. compared to U.S., we got to compare it to other countries too. And if you compare income inequality outcomes between U.S. and the U.K., which most fervently adopted laissez-faire policies since the 1980s, yeah. compared to the more quote-unquote socialist continental European countries, the income inequality outcomes are different. There are differences, you know, even, even between Canada and the U.S. And so you, you can see, for example, that the U.S., U.S. and Sweden, Check this out. I mean, don't quote me on this necessarily. Look at the data yourself. Last time I looked at this was three, four years ago. But U.S. and Sweden have the same Gini coefficient pre-government intervention. Okay. Okay. So Swedish economy is as capitalist, as rapacious as American economy. But then the government comes in and significantly lowers that Gini coefficient. And so my point is that there's a lot that goes into this than just monetary policy. And I think just focusing on monetary policy misses the bigger picture, which is that if monetary policy was tighter, if the interest rates were higher, I'm not sure that U.S. wouldn't still be the U.S. and Sweden wouldn't still be the US, uh, Sweden. Yeah, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head on my view is that as soon as you start manipulating an interest rate, then you start getting weird and wacky kind of outcomes in a marketplace that, that things start getting priced differently. That's certainly how... I would say I'm not disagreeing with the, some of the stats that you've said there. I want to bring this forward to kind of right now. I'm going to come back to, again, something you just said. You said what's going on right now is is harrowing. So I, firstly, I've got to pick up on that. What do you see right now? Oh, man, it's so interesting. You know, I talk to a lot of people from a lot of different places, uh, Australians, continental Europeans, Brits, 
fellow Canadians and Americans. And there is this interesting thing that everyone's talking about right now, which is that people who don't have the means are being forced to move out. You know, I just spent four weeks in one of my favorite places in the world, Taos, New Mexico, a small town in the Rocky Mountains. It's like the southernmost major like ski resorts in the U.S. And the locals, you know, just can't live there anymore because, you know, people from California, people from high-priced places are moving in or wealthy people are buying second, third homes, leaving them unoccupied. And so, so think about a school teacher in this small town of 6,000 people. I mean, they, they can't afford to rent a place to teach kids in this, in this town. And that's happening, by the way, over and over again. And that, I would argue, to your point, is almost entirely a product of monetary policy and also fiscal stimulus as well. So what's happening right now, especially in the real estate market, is I, going, I think going to be a very big political risk issue. Uh, people can't afford to live where they work. Um, I live in Santa Monica in California. It's the third most expensive zip code in California. School teachers that teach my children in schools in Santa Monica have to commute one and a half hours each way to get to work. They can't afford rent in, in anywhere near West LA. And so I think that's unsustainable and I think it's going to blow up. And by the way, if you look at the chart of housing stock in the US, it's going up, but very slowly. I mean, it's nothing like the pre-2008 build-out in investment. We haven't had investment in real estate, in residential real estate in this country, really for a decade. I mean, it's, it kind of picked up after the recession, but it's been very below trend. And so we're being hit with this massive increase in demand for real estate. Demographics in the U.S. are pretty solid as well, both immigration and births. And there's just not enough supply. And I think that that's going to create a political problem. So I think this leads nicely to start building out kind of an understanding of some of the geopolitical things going on around us. What I'm thinking about is obviously we've seen frictions over the last few years between US and China. So I'd like to touch on that. But first, I, I actually want to just concentrate on China because I know that you've just authored a, a special report for Clock Tower, which really was was looking at China. I think it was titled China's Three Traps and the macro trilemma. I, I hope I've got that title right. You did. Yes. Uh, amazing. Can I mean, before we go into that, can people access that for free? Because I think I found it because I follow you on LinkedIn. Yes. I, so it's on LinkedIn. Okay, uh, you can awesome. just go to Marco Papich, click on it. I post like one old piece of research about once every two months, like a teaser. So could we dive into that special report that you, you authored? Because I think some of the things you have in there are quite interesting to, to talk about now. Sure. Okay. So uh, there's two things that I argue. Uh, one is that China has three constraints. And this really, by the way, gives you a sense of my method as well. I don't think about what countries want or can do. I always start off with what they can't okay. or what their constraints are. And so the, the three constraints of China are its geography, its demographics, and the middle income trap, which means that it has a decelerating rate of GDP growth that is likely going to mean that China will spend the rest of the decade in this kind of middle income between 10 and 20,000 GDP per capita, uh, which isn't bad. It's cool. But that is a usually very, very difficult time for an emerging market where middle classes that have been kind of reared that expect a certain rate of growth and quality of life improvement suddenly feel that it just gets mushy. You know, it gets, they get stuck in this middle income trap. So first of all, geography, very important. Uh, China 
you know, everybody focuses on Taiwan, Japan, these kind of like island chains off the coast of China. Yeah. China's really trapped by its addiction to uh, imported commodities. And 90% of its oil comes via ships. And most of those ships transit the Hormuz Strait. Yes, there's some pipelines to Eastern Siberian uh, oil fields. So yeah, China and Russia can collaborate on natural gas. They're going to collaborate more and more. By 2030, there'll be huge, huge, extremely expensive infrastructure between China and Russia. But, you know, it's 2022. Newsflash. <laughs> so between now and then, China's stuck. And so no matter how competent they are in projecting power in their near abroad, the United States of America can put an aircraft carrier on the Straits of Hormuz and it's game over for China. It's, I mean, it's game over within two months. And this is something that a lot of American military strategists don't really talk about because then it would mean that China is not as big of a threat and maybe those checks that Congress writes for new toys, fancy toys. Yeah to fight China would be much smaller. Okay. Like if suddenly all of the United States woke up to the fact that, oh, wait a minute, all we need to put is one aircraft carrier straight from Hormuz and it's over? Mm, okay. So that's the first trap. And that's a trap that means that China can't be as aggressive geopolitically as people think. And I think it's, it's something that a lot of people are missing. Look, I've been writing about China-U.S. tensions since 2010, 2011. Yeah. I've been a hawk. I've been a bear. I told people this, forget about Middle East. This is the issue. But as I always say when I'm on a podcast like this, that was last decade's forecast. Yeah. You know, like I, every geopolitical mumbo jumbo forecaster that you have on your podcast, you should ask him in 2011, 12, were you obsessing about ISIS or China? If they say ISIS, just turn off your mic, right? Like, okay, cool. <laughs> like you missed it. But yeah. now in 2022, I think we need to think about this trap. The middle income thing is really important. I mean, the pivot this year by Chinese policymakers away from growth economic growth over everything to this kind of refocusing on, you know, common prosperity, on income inequality is related to the middle income trap. Because look, if you're going to be stuck in the middle income trap for most of the 2020s, if growth is not going to satiate your middle classes, then you need a different strategy. And that strategy becomes redistribution. Chinese policymakers think about this, you kind of lower the laissez-faire Let's be like America lever and you jack up the let's be like Sweden lever. That's what they're doing. Yeah. And then the third trap is demographics. And I mean, everybody knows Chinese demographics are poor. Lots has been written about this. But I think the way most people think about this is kind of neither here nor there. To me, the reason demographics matters is that a high savings rate society, savings rates drops as your society gets older because old people don't save, they consume. And as your savings rate drops, the problem with savings rate dropping is that you also need to drop your investment rate in order to keep your current account balance. And this is something Japan executed perfectly. As it got older, the savings rate dropped and investment dropped. And Japan doesn't really invest that much domestically, started investing abroad and so on and so on. But in China's case, because it's stuck in the middle income trap, because it doesn't have a GDP per capita of $40,000 GDP, it has to continue to invest, particularly given that its middle class growth and middle class consumption is massively impacted by um, over indebted households, something that a lot of people don't talk about. But Chinese household debt relative to disposable income is higher than that of the United States of America. So the only lever for growth in this country, the only lever is investment led growth, which everybody says is going to have to decline. Nope, not going to happen and export-like growth, which everybody says Chinese are going to pivot towards domestic consumption. What? What domestic consumption? 
their households are more indebted than America. So China is going to be exactly what it was in the last decade, exactly what it was in the last decade, investment-led, export-led. And that like blows people's minds because then they come back to me and they're like, but Marco, the Chinese government says they're going to have this dual circulation and domestic. I'm like, yeah, cool. I also say I'm going to have abs in six months. You know, why are you listening to what the Chinese policymakers are saying? Like, I get it. They want to have a dual circulation economy, more mercantilism, domestic consumption. Their households can't, they can't carry the economy. You know, that's what they did last decade. So what does all of this mean? It means that China is stuck in its traps for the next decade. And it means that the, the expectation of geopolitical forecasters who woke up in 2020 and smelled the coffee of China-U.S. competition. Oh, my God, here it is, the Cold War 2.0. They're extrapolating linearly without understanding the constraints that China faces itself. Now, you know, obviously, policymakers may not understand the constraints. They may uh, they make mistakes and so on. But my bet is that the U.S.-China competition is actually going to kind of fizzle out. I mean, it's going to be there. It's going to be the most important thing. Of course, Taiwan is the most important geopolitical issue, blah, 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 blah. And that's, I'm not saying that's not true, but... If you're expecting fireworks, you know, you might be sorely disappointed. So what's China doing about this, by the way? So what the piece also argues is that in order to solve its traps, China is abandoning the U.S. growth model. Okay. That's the bottom line. And it's abandoning this kind of laissez-faire, tech-heavy growth model, and it's pivoting towards more continental European-style growth models, particularly Germany, whether it's when it comes to education, you know, uh, industrial policy. China is now trying to build out this manufacturing heavy and reduce reliance on tech. Why? Because, well, China realized it's not America. It's not a high income economy. It's, it, it can't rush to a service heavy in, uh, economy too quickly. If you do, your productivity will decline. It's okay for US or UK to have low productivity because our GDP per capita is so massive. It, it's not that relevant. For China, they need productivity to stay high. That's only going to happen if they continue to make stuff in factories. And to do that, they're going to have to rely on exports. And if they rely on exports, they're going to have to be much nicer to the rest of the world than I think a lot of geopolitical forecasters, especially here in the U.S., expect. So in terms of that, I mean, kind of, I, I want to bring a couple of things into this, because in the book, you kind of lay out a framework. And I think you started going down that like you said you start with constraints which, you know, is, is something which I certainly picked up from your book and work into my own kind of strategy and things like that. But in terms of that framework, could you wrap that framework around what we've just been talking about and kind of how you look at these things? Well, first of all, I'm so glad that you took that from the book. I mean, somebody asked me like, hey, is your book really just about this point about constraints? I'm like, yeah. And like, so why didn't you just write a like one page paper? I was like, well, I did, you know, but then somebody was like, no, you should write a book. My partner, Steve Jarovnik, who wrote a book, he was like, no, man, make a book out of it. And I was like, okay, fine. Uh, and he was right. So my framework boils down to one phrase that's like always bolded in the book, which is that preferences are always optional and subject to constraints, whereas constraints are neither optional nor subject to preferences. I mean, think about your own life. Like I always use this example. If I want to buy a Bentley Coupe GT, that's my preference. Yeah. My constraint is my bank account, my spouse, the fact that I have three kids and it doesn't really hold three kids in the back seats, right? Like those are the things that are constraints. So if you want to forecast whether Marco Popic is going to be rolling around Santa Monica in a baby blue Bentley Coupe GT, you don't want to 
just ask, well, what does Marco want? You want to ask. You want to understand, Marco. yeah, what what actually can happen. And so, in the case of the China thing that we just talked about, I don't, note I didn't say a thing about Xi Jinping's speech yeah. at the anniversary where he said blah blah blah. I don't care. I approach like Putin wants. He wrote he wrote an op-ed, Chris. Putin wrote an op-ed in July where he said, Ukraine's part of Russia. Oh, my God. They're going to invade. No, who cares? Whatever. I write op-eds. Cool. Cool story. Vlad, you know, like, let me go through the constraints. You go through the constraints first, and then, you know, maybe there is an option, a probability. No, in the case of Russia-Ukraine, I think the probability is higher of a conflict. But in the case of China-US, the constraints of China are massive. Yeah. Are massive. They have to do with the middle class growth. They have to do with the fact that their middle class is about to start hitting the wall of disappointments. And also the fact that they're retooling their economy into a Germany. And there's a reason Germany saved the euro area because it's completely addicted to its export markets. China has the export markets and export part of GDP growth is critical to the continued prosperity of the nation. And so throwing all of that away to militarily reunite with its wayward province of Taiwan, I think doesn't make sense. Now, that's a framework. It's not a theory. It's not even a method. You, you know what I mean? It's very messy. Uh, but I think this is a framework that every investor should adopt because it gives us something to begin with. And it allows us to make sense of these situations, even if you're actually a bottom-up investor. You know, even if you're a stock picker, even if you're someone who uses technical analysis, you can't just ignore politics. My book is written for like the little guy who's just sitting in front of Bloomberg terminal or her by themselves. They're trying to figure this stuff out. And, you know, they have a bunch of information about politics. How, how to make sense of it is to start with something. And that something is this materialistic dialectic that focuses on constraints. So if we stick to constraints, and that kind of that overriding thesis of the book. I don't want to pivot just yet to the constraints of Russia and what's going on there. We will come to that in a second. But I do want to talk about kind of what the Belt and Road Initiative, in terms of China and its policy, where does that fit in and, and, and what's that trying to actually do? Is I mean, is that just a completely misguided investment project? Or is there actually something in there which is a kind of a wild card for them to overcome some of these constraints? I mean, look, one problem I, I think we have in the world today is that too many people think in ones or zeros. You know, multiple things can be right at the same time. I mean, when you look at what COVID debates, oh my God, you know, like I want to light myself on fire, you know, like multiple things can be true at the same time. In the case of Belt and Road, yeah, there is a geopolitical like idea there, of course. Like, let's get away from Straits of Hormuz. Let's build some infrastructure through Eurasia. Let's tap European markets with trains. For sure. Let's avoid the U.S. Navy is basically what they're trying to do. You know, instead of building the, uh, a Navy to challenge the U.S. Navy, let's just avoid it. Brilliant. Yeah. At the same time, though, let's not overstate it. You know, some of these ports that they're investing in, like, meh, you know, you can't really avoid Straits of Hormuz, maybe in the long term. I think primarily the Belt and Road was intended to take all this excess capital in China and invest it abroad so as not to continue to invest domestically. So as not to build a fifth Shanghai airport or the 12th uh, highway between two cities, which is redundant and return of capital is low, let's build a highway in Kyrgyzstan where they don't have one. Like return investment will be huge. I think there's a macro rationale between Belt and Road that makes perfect sense. 
Korea and Japan did the same thing in the 80s and the 90s. I lived in the third world back then. Uh, I lived for part of my life in, in Jordan, in the Middle East. You know, Korean investment in these countries like Jordan were huge so as to create markets for their goods and services. And China's doing the same thing. Now, uh, in the West, obviously, Belt and Road, you know, it's part of this kind of like a narrative that, that we're all going to be speaking Mandarin in 20 years, and therefore we need to counter China. But if you look at some of these projects, they've either failed, China's either lost money. It's not all that it's cracked up to be. It makes sense. They're exporting excess capacity and actually also finding uh, markets for their labor. Uh, so you have construction companies building stuff with Chinese labor in third world countries. All of that stuff is very reminiscent of what South Korea and Japan did also in the 80s. The geopolitical intentionality is there. I assign a very low probability that Belt and Road will ever really be that relevant for China in the future. So with that, let's also talk about Europe, because I, I want to bring that in. I know I keep saying we'll come back to Russia and we'll, we'll get there. We're just going a very long way around to get there. But I want to talk about Russia in terms of, I think, one of the other things that you kind of pull out in the book, which, again, I completely agree with. We're going through this kind of this deglobalization. I think this is somewhere else you get a lot of arguments from, again, kind of people who just want to write blog posts and things like that, saying that in that, as the protectionist regimes kind of come together as, as kind of US looks more inward, let's say, there's like less need for European Union and things like that. But actually, I would argue the other way around in that as those things happen, it's almost that those countries within Europe need a bigger voice to have a seat at the table. But where do you see the evolution of Europe from here? What do you see going on? Hey, listen, Chris, this is what made my career, right? Like this call made my career, Euro area call. And it was really interesting to me because it was my first kind of taste of how people mix ideological views, their preferences, their own personal preferences, like EU socks, you know, my sausages have to be a certain size. I hate that. With like forecasting. I'm originally Serbian, now Canadian, you know, like, I don't care what happens to the EU. Like, you know, my homeland's never getting in, like, you know, so I'm not, I'm not sweating this. Uh, but, but it's, it, it's irrelevant. Like, you have to wash away your biases if you're going to forecast correctly. And in 2010, 2011, a lot of the Anglo-Saxon world really hated the EU for a number of different reasons. You know, and so there was this like constant barrage of news articles how this was going to fall apart. Whereas the geopolitical imperative, the geopolitical functionality of the EU was clearer than ever. And it, it has to do with this fact that in a multipolar world where you have the Chinas, the Indias, the Americas, the Russias, the Turkeys, all these relatively large countries, some huge, some relatively big, like India, like uh, Turkey or Iran. If you're like Czech Republic, if you're Czechia, or you're like Slovenia, what the hell are you going to do on your own? How are you going to access global markets? Now, in a unipolar world, which was the stretch from 1989 to 2014 or 15, whatever you want to say, it kind of made sense, maybe. There's one bully in the world, America, setting rules for everyone. Yeah, it actually makes sense. That was the world in which it didn't may, maybe made sense to dissolve the EU in the 90s. Oh, America is in charge. Okay, I don't need to go to Brussels to get my preferences or my interests protected. But today, where it's every country for itself, the EU obviously makes sense, geopolitically speaking. Now, you know, uh, domestically, obviously, there's all sorts of issues that EU like misses or does terrible. But as a protectionist bloc, for a number of countries, they pull their interests and they protect them. Obviously, the big countries are going to get more of their interests protected. That's how the world works. 
but at least Malta has a say in some forum, you know. Without the EU, Malta has a say in no forum whatsoever. And that is why I think the EU will continue to integrate further. Uh, now, there might be like satellites that spin out of orbit, you know, they can't sustain this. There might be a deeper integration with the Euro area member states relative to the EU. But I think that the European Union will continue to exist as long as there's a multipolar world. If there's a hegemon at some point, then things might change. Like if China wins out, which I don't think will happen, or America reasserts its hegemony, maybe you will see the EU become less relevant. But for now, it is quite relevant. So in terms of that, finally, let's circle this back to Russia, because obviously, you know, we've seen constant news feeds over the last few weeks, EU, Russia, sat here in Britain, we're basically end of the gas pipeline. And um, <laughs> when when Russia decided that, that they weren't going to quite send as much gas through the pipe, you know, the UK certainly felt it. Can you give a high level overview of kind of what's going on here? Because I've got a feeling that you'll have a take which is far broader than the, the mainstream media gives you of things going on perhaps over the last few years, which have led here. There's a lot of things going on, you know, but it really has to do with Russia and Ukraine, first and foremost. This has to do with their relationship. A lot of us in the West constantly go back to this idea of NATO expansion and so on and so on. And I think that, sure, there's a place and time to discuss that. But first and foremost, we need to state the facts. Ukraine and my homeland of Serbia are the only two countries, last time I checked, which was a couple of years ago, maybe it's not true anymore, but there are only two countries that did not overcome their 1989 GDP per capita in the Eastern European post-Soviet, post-communist world. That's it. Ukraine now lags its neighbors like Romania and Bulgaria. It doesn't neighbor Bulgaria, but it's close. It trails Romania, let alone Poland, in GDP per capita performance. For anyone who knows Eastern Europe, this is a travesty for the Ukrainians. U- Ukraine was one of the wealthiest, most educated, most industrialized regions of the Soviet Union. And they're now poorer than neighboring Romania, which in the 1970s and 80s was like barely industrialized country relative to Ukraine. And so we need to pause and kind of like realize, okay, 30 years of being in the Russian sphere of influence just doesn't work for Ukrainians anymore. And so they revolted repeatedly. 2004, the Orange Revolution. 2014, the Euromaidan, whatever it's called. And so that's the fundamental problem here. Ukraine is revolting against its membership in the Russian sphere of influence. It doesn't mean that the politicians that are going to come are going to be more effective. There's clearly a lot of institutional and structural problems in Ukraine that, you know, no matter whether it's a pro-Russian or a pro-European politician, it doesn't really matter for a lot of people there. But their experience over the last 30 years has just told the Ukrainian citizens that they have to revolt. Russia has tried to handle this in multiple different ways. In 2004, 2005, I would argue Putin reacted coolly, collectively, and really intelligently. He waited. He said, okay, Orangists, have your turn. Let's see how you do. They did terribly. They were as, if not more corrupt than the previous regime. And then, you know, Yanukovych came back. He had Paul Manafort to help him, God bless him, with this pro-EU message where he said we're going to straddle the two worlds and he won democratically without any evidence of impropriety he won a democratic election the pro-russian candidate won 
He won. He just cleaned himself a little bit, said, hey, look, EU is good. We'll, we'll see what it can offer. That lasted until 2014, obviously, where you know he was put into this very difficult position with the EU partnership agreement. And there was the Euromaidan revolt. And then you have now the, the second anti-Russian you know, revolution. But the point is that the first reaction by, by Moscow was very cool and collected. They waited it out. They used democratic means, obviously, and propaganda and blah, blah, blah. But God bless them. Everybody does that too. So we're not going to look down on that. So what happened in 2014? You know, why did Russia then, in my view, overreact with Crimea and so on? And, you know, Chris, I can't really explain that. But I think that that was a mistake. And it was a mistake because by annexing Crimea and by creating this conflict in Donetsk and Luhansk, what Moscow has done is it's cut out of Ukraine the most pro-Russian parts. It would be the equivalent of taking Texas and Florida out of the United States of America. Well, newsflash, you're never going to have a Republican president ever again in history of mankind. Like, period. And that's what he did. He took Ukraine's Texas and Florida out. And now he's miffed that Ukraine is anti-Russian. Well, you know. Yeah. Good job. No, no surprise. Yeah. <laughs> no surprise. And now there's this like, oh, you know, what really happened is you guys offered a NATO membership. First of all, that is not true. Americans keep offering Ukraine and Georgia NATO membership. Okay. But the Germans and the French are adamant. Like They're not like clear about this because it's like uncomfortable. They don't want to like be seen as leaving Ukraine yeah, yeah. out to dry. But France and Germany will never accept NATO or EU membership for Ukraine or Georgia. Are you kidding me? It's a unanimous decision by NATO. Like they will veto it. Obviously they won't veto it. So when, when Russia comes out and says this is unacceptable, it's kind of fake because leaders of countries know the truth. And the truth is Germany will veto Ukraine membership. So to me, this is much more petty. And I don't mean petty in a normative way. I mean petty. It's like petite. It's petite geopolitics. It's not grand geopolitics. This is not about Russian borders or West encroaching on Russia. No, 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 no. That's the propaganda Russia sends to be seen as a victim. The truth here is that Ukraine wants out of Russia's sphere of influence, and Russia wants it in its sphere of influence because it's 43 million people yeah. who do share commonalities and will buy Russian goods and services. So how does this get resolved? I'm not sure, but here's what I know. The constraints in Russia are vast when it comes to invading Ukraine, uh, the totality of it. And so I think what's left is sort of a chest-beating exercise for domestic audience or maybe there's an incursion into Donbass. I think the worst case scenario, Chris, is a 2008 Georgia intervention. In 2008, Russia came in, if you remember, tanks were outside of Tbilisi. Serious people were wondering whether Russia would just annex all of the country within that first week of the intervention. And then within days, they withdrew, took South Ossetia and Abkhazia and said, okay, this is now where the lines are ossified. I think something similar could happen. The market is going to puke if it happens. Ruble will collapse. People will freak out. Hair will be pulled. Tanks will be outside of Kiev. And then Russia withdraws and takes what it wants, which is half of Donetsk and Luhansk, which is, by the way, not a lot. I don't see Russia invading all of Ukraine. Ukrainians, including Russian speakers, don't want to be in Russia's sphere of influence. They would have to fight an insurgency in a country of 40 million people with an armed force that hasn't proven itself that it's capable of conducting a large-scale invasion ever. You know, Russia hasn't been in that kind of a war since Afghanistan in the 80s. Mm -hmm. So this will be a really, really huge miscalculation if Russia went for, like, the bigger cake. But if it's some sort of a fake maneuver where, you know, you go in, tanks are outside of Kiev for a couple of days, people freak out, and then you take half of Donetsk and Luhansk, 
I can see that as a potential outcome. But constraints in Russia are too vast to do anything more than that. And I would argue, and I will argue any day, I'd love, maybe you could get Vladimir Putin on this podcast so we can have a debate, but I would argue that 2004, Russia did the kind of strategically correct play. 2014, I'd love to ask it, what were you thinking? Yeah. You know, like you shot yourself in the foot. The chances of Ukraine ever coming back to Russian sphere of influence are now precipitously low. The costs of that are enormous. 2004, you were so smart. You were so tempered. 2014, you were not. And it's not clear to me, you know, what, what, what changed. Is. Yeah. I don't know. So it's kind of coming to the end of, of this episode, but I want to wrap up by really, so we've talked about China, we've talked about Russia, we've talked a little bit about EU, but I really want to get kind of what are the biggest things you're looking at over the next 10 years? Like what's, what's crossing your mind? What's crossing your desk? And where should people be really kind of focusing? Yeah, so first and foremost, the point of income inequality and, you know, monetary policy, fiscal policy, the move away from Washington consensus to something else. I call it the Buenos Aires consensus, uh, which is like more populism, more Arge we're all asymptotically approaching Argentina. That's domestic politics, you know, Chris, that's policy. And I think that would drive markets more than any conflict or cool geopolitical issue in the world. And, and where does that change come from? Where does that change I mean, is that a drive from the politician or is that a drive no, from the voter? Median voter. Median voter is moving to the left. Yeah. Everywhere. Everywhere. Except maybe in a few European countries that were so left to begin with that they're not moving to the right. You know? Politically or economically? Because those, those, two, those two things are different, yes. aren't they? Yeah. Everybody always asks me that, you know, look, political issues I don't really care about. Yeah. Like abortion or like gun rights, like cool, whatever. That's not going to move markets. So to me... I really mean economically. Economically, even right-wing Republicans are now using the term working class. You know, try to find a Republican who uses job creators. Remember that? Remember Mitt Romney <laughs> arguing with Obama about how he stands for job creators? Yeah, who talks about job creators now? Nobody. Yeah. The Repub you will be hard-pressed to find a Republican using the term middle class. It's all about working class now. I mean, it sounds like a Politburo meeting, for God's sake. And, so, it, and isn't that a funny U-turn from like, you know, kind of you you mentioned like you gave a time period of the last 40 years from Thatcher and Reagan, where even like the left were pretty pro-market. Yes. And Chris, that's critical. What you just said is critical because that shows you that politicians are price takers. The median voter, the median voter is a price maker in the political marketplace. And the median voter just wants more free stock. So I would argue that that, to me, over the next 10 years is the most important market-moving political geopolitical issue. I use geopolitics as a cool branding term, but this is much more than just like great power politics. This is about trying to forecast policy. And so the first thing I think is domestic politics is going to really matter for investors. We'll, we're going to be able to invest in countries based on how far they're going on this left-wing pendulum and how, which ones are staying in the middle. So that's the first issue. The second issue, and by the way, I think that the U.S. is most advanced in its marginal move to the left. I'm not saying objectively is most left. Of course not. But market acts on marginal moves. And the U.S., in my view, is going to make the biggest swing to the left over the next 10 years. And I don't care who's the president. Republicans could take over in 2024. You think they're going to stop spending? Okay, cool. Cool story. How did that work out under the Trump administration? Even before the pandemic, they were spending like crazy. So like, look, there's this pendulum moving. And I think the market will eventually start punishing the U.S. for that. So that's the first issue. The second issue I think is critical is multipolarity. 
And I think investors don't have a good handle of multipolarity. This is this idea that there are multiple countries that can pursue their interests independent of one another. Most of human history has been multipolar. Unipolarity and bipolarity is rare, especially bipolarity. Like Cold War, everyone's like, Cold War 2.0, Cold War 3.0. No! Cold War is difficult. It's difficult to have two countries like so powerful they put everyone down. That's not the world I see. I see a very messy multipolar world. And that's a world in which it's going to be very difficult to kind of forecast. There, let me put it this way. There's going to be a lot of military conflict, more so than in a bipolar, but it doesn't mean that they're going to be relevant for markets. And so we're going to have to learn to kind of like distance ourselves from freaking out every time something happens, like this Russia-Ukraine business. And then the third issue is kind of going back to your point about industrial revolution. I think one is going to happen. We have so much money sloshing around, so much capital going into new technologies. We are going to have technological innovation. And, and, you know, like we have like four minutes here. I mean, I've been talking a lot, but we could do a whole podcast just on what I think about this. I think that there is going to be a new technological revolution that takes us away from industrial revolution and ushers in something new. And the primary reason for that is that all the politicians in the world have decided that climate change is going to kill us all. And so we have to pump trillions of dollars. Now, when I speak to my conservative friends who don't believe in climate change, I always say, like, listen, God bless you. All right, there's no climate change. It's all a hoax. Cool. I got it. But if I hose an issue with trillions of dollars, there's going to be outcomes and solutions. You know, we have a massive Apollo program going on right now. The outcomes of that are going to be meaningful. So I do think that we are going to solve global warming, climate change over the next 10 years. I think the technologies that are going to emerge out of this are going to be incredible. But I also think that those technologies will change the way that we think about manufacturing and our means of production, to use a Marxist term. Yeah, absolutely. You know, my view on the kind of this social change or kind of the industrial revolution, kind of the next phase, whatever, however you want to put it, comes from, I personally, I think people are far too siloed in their thinking. They just think about one thing at a time and go, oh, well, that's going to translate into this. But right now we have so many mega trends and trends converging. You know, you take, we, we've t- t- touched on so many qu- points here, income inequality. We could take debt. We could take the changes in fiscal and monetary unification. We could take demographics. We could, you know, any of these things. And what, from my view, all of these things are coming together at the same time. And that is, is yes. revolutionary in itself. It's very revolutionary. At that point that you're saying that everything's coming at the same time, I agree with you as well. People are surprised by inflation. And it's like, why are you surprised by inflation? You have a shift from Washington consensus to Buenos Aires consensus. You have an energy uh, shift. And you have a national security redundancy prerogative. You have these three mega trends happening at the same time. Of course, we're going to constantly have supply chain issues. And it has nothing to do with the pandemic. Like even if we didn't have a pandemic, the fact that you are forcing countries to build redundancy in supply, eventually it'll be deflationary. But as you're building it, that's a lot of capex, a lot of factories you're trying to build because suddenly China is no longer acceptable as a supplier of the world. You have this energy transition, which everyone's imposing on themselves at exactly the same time. What do you think is going to happen when you when there's less capex into fossil fuels while you're trying to build new mines to deal with copper and lithium shortages. And then on top of that, you have more inflationary monitoring fiscal policy. Of course, we're going to be in an inflationary world for some time. But eventually, the pendulum will swing the other way. The good news about all of this is that we are flush with cash that's chasing innovation. And a lot of people 
are very bearish about that. They're like, oh my God, too much money chasing it. It's like, yes, there'll be a lot of bad in investments, but technology will advance. That's the biggest constraint in technological innovation is capital. So technological innovation will happen. It doesn't mean that you will make money out of it. And that's something to keep in mind. Like railroads were a great technological innovation. It ended up being a terrible investment. Telephone companies, huge innovation, terrible investment. You know, so like that's just something to keep in mind as well. I'm, I'm actually quite po positive on this technological innovation that's going to come down the pipeline. And we can, can talk about it again. I'll send you some of the reports on that, Chris, and you can... Yeah, please do. I, I think we're going to pencil in another show. Well, hone in on that because both of us could talk about that for a, uh, more than an hour. <laughs> Marco, that's been absolutely superb. Thank you so much for being on the show. I just want to finish by asking you, basically, if people want to find out more about what you do, the work you do, where do they go and how do they get it? Yeah, just hit me up on LinkedIn. That's the easiest way. And then we can talk about it. I mean, uh, our research is really just for select clients and investors of Clock Tower Group. But definitely, if you're interested, you know, we can talk about that uh, and they can access it that way. I, I'm not on Twitter or anything like that. I'm just on LinkedIn. Very selective. It's all about scarcity. Yeah. <laughs> Creating FOMO. <laughs> Super. No, Mark, thank you so much for that. It's, uh, it's been absolutely great chatting. Thank you so much for the time, Chris. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Transitional Matters. Make sure to like, subscribe, and sign up to the show's email newsletter by going to chrismarshall.uk. And we'll see you next time for more from the world of mega trends and transitions. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute an offer or recommendation to buy or sell any securities. Content should be treated as educational and general and should not be seen as a recommendation to use any particular investment strategy.